Good morning again, and this morning we're going to be in Exodus chapter 24, so let me invite you to turn there with me. We're actually going to be looking throughout the book of Exodus, uh, as today's topic is on the covenant with Moses, and how Moses was a mediator for the covenant with Israel there in this book, and talking about the Ten Commandments, and how all of that works together through this common theme that we've been talking about, the covenant of grace. So before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for, for his help. Father, as we come to your word, we pray that you would help us to hold on to the major theme of Scripture, and that is, even while we were still sinners, our Lord Jesus Christ died for us. It would be easy for us to get caught up in the law and think, I have to do this in order to be saved. And that is just not the case. If it were, every one of us would stand condemned. But because of Jesus, we stand beside him. He, our elder brother, and we, your children. And so, Father, as your children, help us to understand your word. Help us to be convicted of our sin as we see ourselves in your word, and as we see our, our failings. But not to be condemned by them, but Lord, to, to see them as a call to holiness. Open our ears, open our hearts that we might see the truth that is in your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So last week we talked about Abraham, and we were still in the very, very beginning of the book of Genesis. And so you know that if you've read, if you've read the book of Genesis, Abraham's family does not stop with Isaac. His family grows, and eventually he has a, a grandson named Jacob, and Jacob has twelve sons, and each of them the father of a tribe of Israel. It's the son Joseph that takes up the last portion of the book of Genesis. And if you'll remember with Joseph, remember he had the Technicolor dream coat, or that's the, the play, that's what that's called. I don't think scripture actually uses the word Technicolor. Um, but I did color that a whole lot when I was growing up in Sunday school. Uh, but Joseph has this coat, and that's why he gets captured and thrown into prison and taken, or taken to Egypt, then thrown in prison, and then eventually made number two in all the land, directly under Pharaoh. And this astonishing turnaround makes sense to us as we've been studying this book and we've been studying God's paradigm for redemption. Why does that astonishing turnaround make sense? Because the Lord is looking out for his people, and the Lord intends to save his people and that no harm would ultimately come to them. And so Joseph becomes like number two in Egypt, and even his brothers who sold him into slavery eventually come to Egypt to avoid famine, and all the people of Israel are there in Egypt. And they grow from this small little family, or, or big family relatively, to a, a nation inside the nation of Egypt. And they do this for 430 years 
And then we get to Exodus chapter 1. And I'll read here this, this prologue to the book of Exodus. And as I read, I want you to hear the covenant language that is enveloped in this first little bit. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all of that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Remember Genesis 1. Remember what God said to Noah. This should all be coming back to us. Israel is doing exactly that in a foreign land under a foreign leader. But Egypt was good to Israel during this time. Until we get to verse 8. And it says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Who did not know that Joseph was number two and that delivered the entire country of Egypt from famine and made them into the prominent country that they were during this time in the history. They forgot why Israel was there in the first place. So they turned Israel to slaves and they treated them harshly and we get an account of that in the first couple of chapters there in Exodus and even in their harsh treatment they continued to grow why because God was showing them his favor and eventually there in the end of chapter 2 they cry out to the Lord look at verse 23 through 25 there at the end of chapter 2 and again hear this covenant language that is exactly what we've been reading all along. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And get this, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God remembered his covenant. God is still dealing with his people the same way that he always has been. Ever since he made the promise to Adam, there will come one that will crush the head of the serpent. Even though their circumstances have changed, what is God still doing? He is still dealing with them the way that he always has. It's the same for us. Our circumstances change all the time. Constantly and without warning. Our lives can go from really nice and good and easy to horrible in just a few seconds. And we know that. And we've seen that in the lives of others and sometimes in our own. But they're no secret to God. Our circumstances are not secret to him. He does not get surprised like we do because he knows all things. They do not change the way that he interacts with us. And so as we come to this section on the Mosaic Covenant, 
I want us to understand that God does not change the way that he is dealing with his people. How does he deal with his people? He shows us favor even though we are undeserving. What do we call that? We call that grace. Even though we're going to move to a section of scripture where God outlines ten commandments and several other commandments for the country of Israel, we don't need to then shift over to, well, he's no longer dealing with us with grace. Now he's dealing with us in law. And we somehow owe him law, even though we can't possibly keep up with that. And so as we look at this today, I want us to see that God is still a God of grace as Moses is leading his people and as he is today. We're going to see that his dealings have not changed at all. And so we're going to look at this three ways from Exodus chapter 24. First, the confirmation of the covenant, the sign of the covenant, and lastly, the keeper of the covenant, and that is Jesus Christ. So as we read Exodus 24, let's stand together for the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord, of the Lord and all the rules and all the people answered with one voice and said all the words that the Lord has spoken we will do and Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel and he sent young men of the people of Israel who burned who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in the basins, and half the blood he threw against the altar. And he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the seventy elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like like, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men, on the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate, and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain, and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone, with the law and the commandment, which which I have written, for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now there appeared of the 
Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain forty days, forty nights. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. And I went ahead and read the, encha- the entire chapter there because it, it helps us to understand the scene, both that Moses is experiencing and that the people of Israel are experiencing. But I want to focus on these first 11 verses here. And again, this is not a story that is completely unknown to us. I mean, we know the story of how the people of God came from Egypt. That the Lord delivered his people through the plagues, and Pharaoh and his obstinates continued to keep them until finally the Lord killed all the firstborn of Egypt. And that the people of the Lord were able to leave leave Egypt. And not only that, they were basically able to strip Egypt of all of its wealth. And remember from last week in Genesis chapter 15, the Lord told Abraham that very thing would happen. He said, your people will be in a foreign country for 400 years. And they'll come from that country exceedingly wealthy. This is not news to the people of Israel. They should have saw this and been glad and re- and rejoiced at this coming true of the prophecy of God. We read this last week. And this event even culminates with the entire Egyptian army being crushed by the Red Sea. The same Red Sea that the Israelites had just crossed on dry land. And we, we think of this and we've seen pictures in our head of this. But these people actually saw the Red Sea stand up on its end. I mean, I I can't even, we can't even begin to wrap our heads around that. That much water, and then dry ground, and it's just, uh, just amazing to think about that. However, and that's, that's in Exodus chapter 14. And however, as you continue to read through the book of Exodus, what happens? What happens when the people of Israel don't have water to drink? They complain. What happens when they don't have a little food to eat? They complain. And what what is their primary wish? What do they go to Moses and say? Please, let us go back to Egypt. The God who just stood the Red Sea on end apparently is unable to feed and and water his people. Or at least that's what they thought. So they complained. But yet here, what is the Lord doing? He's entering into a covenant again with them. Why? Because he loves them. And even though they are sinful, even though they would turn back to those Egyptian gods who fed them apparently, God is going to enter into a covenant with them. In Exodus 19, we read this very thing. So I'll start reading at verse 3. It says, and this is coming right after these complaints, all of these complaints. And the people even wanted to get rid of Moses. They wanted to kill him. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, 
Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. This is a God of grace that comes to his people even while they complain and says, you will be mine forevermore because I am faithful to the things that I said to you. You will be my people and I will be your God. I think a lot of times we want to draw this sharp distinction between grace and the law. And it's not here anywhere in the text. There doesn't have to be a sharp line between God's grace and loving a sinful people and his demand for holiness in our lives. So God's covenant here with Moses and the people of the, of the Lord by extension is still the covenant of grace. This is still the covenant of grace that we've been studying. Why? Because a gracious God comes to his people even while they are still sinning. Just because the law is here and the Lord has Moses write the law down, that doesn't mean that all of a sudden these are brand new conditions of the covenant. If you'll remember all the way back to Adam, the Lord had these rules for Adam. They were just never written down as, as the Ten Commandments. But the Lord had, was life was sacred, and property, and all these things were sacred, and marriage was sacred. It, it didn't stop or start being sacred all of a sudden since Moses wrote these Ten Commandments down. The Lord has always required the law. But thankfully, he loves us even when we fail. And so that is the basis for what we're talking about here. The basis for God's interaction with Israel is his covenant with them. This covenant relationship transcends any particular conditions of the covenant. I want us to remember that. God has made an everlasting covenant, and who will finally... Who will finally do that? Who will finally solve that covenant for his people? That's our Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we look to these Old Testament texts, we need to stay rooted there because if we don't, we will easily grab a hold of the law and then we'll become legalists. We will become people who say, well, you have to follow this in order to be saved. And our whole lives will be driven by following the law and not only that, making other people do that, which is usually the outworking of that. Or, we're going to go to the other, other side and let the pendulum swings too far the other way, and we're going to dismiss the importance of the law altogether and become lawless, thinking that the law is just, just important for a small section of Scripture and the rest of it we don't have to worry about. And so let's not swing either way, brothers and sisters. Let's stay right in the middle. And so, with this scene in Exodus 24... This is the closing of the covenant ceremony with Moses. And so here we're going to see some very pertinent things to our discussion about the covenant. 
And first is the confirmation of the covenant. So look there in Exodus 24. All the elders, all the people, uh, the elders of the people, and Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu, those were Aaron's sons. They come to the Lord. They are representative of all the people. Moses is called the mediator of this covenant. And so even though the Lord is dealing directly with Moses, he represents all the people of Israel. And so make sure that you understand that. And and he reads the book to them. He, he reads the law to the people. And what do they say? All the words that the Lord has spoken, we ag- agree to do or we will do. So the people agreed to this part of the covenant. And again, these conditions of the covenant don't erase the fact that God is the upholder of the covenant ultimately. Because remember, God put Abraham to sleep after he'd cut the animals in two. And and who walked through the middle of those animals? God alone did. God alone walked through the middle of those animals. It was God alone who is the upholder of the terms. But the people, what was their desire here when they said, all these things we will do, what is their desire? For holiness. Their desire is to serve the Lord that has brought them out of Egypt. Their desire is to follow the commandments of the Lord because He has done so good to them. And so God is not stopping in, not stopping in His demanding of our holiness just because He's done good things for us. And so make sure we understand that. But His demand of our holiness, thankfully, is answered in Jesus Christ. And so Moses writes down all these words of the Lord. And and I think this is an interesting point, because Moses, he writes down all the words of the Lord, which uh, are the rest of the, the Pentateuch here, primarily. And why does he do that? So that others will remember. Because what's going to happen to Moses? The same things that happened to everybody else. And he died. And so Moses has to write these things down so that future generations might know this is what you should do. This is what the Lord did for you. All the ancient covenants were in writing. And this is actually part of the development of writing for all civilization. Part of the development and the need for writing was to record these ancient covenants. And so the writing of the word is just another way for the people to remember the words of the Lord, but also to remember their commitment. And then what does he do? He builds altars so that the Lord is represented by one altar, and then he builds the pillars as a representative of the people of Israel. And so these signs point to this much greater spiritual reality that is going on here. And that brings us to this next point, is the sign of the covenant. We've been talking a lot about signs uh, in recent weeks because we've been talking about the covenant, and all the covenant has signs. And so what is the sign here? Well, look. He sent young men of the people of Israel who, burnt, who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins, and half the blood he threw against the altar. Blood and death. Blood is a large part of the Mosaic Covenant. 
and a, and a large part of Israel's formation as a nation and the formation of their ceremonial laws that you can read about some in this book and some in the book of Leviticus. And why are these laws put in place? Well, the laws are put in place to show the people of God a daily reminder of how their sins will be forgiven. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9, or chapter 9. And the author of Hebrews had Exodus 19 through 24 open as he was writing his book. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 19 through 22, it says this. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Why all the need for this blood? Because it points forward to the forgiveness of sins. It points forward to the sacrifice that had to be made. Is this a new idea? No. Read Genesis chapter 4. The first children that are born, one of them offered the right offering, Abel, and what did he do? He sacrificed an animal and offered it to the Lord. Noah, what's the very first thing he did when he got off the ark? He took an animal and he sacrificed it and offered it to the Lord. This is not a new idea. And so God is just making sure this idea that has been around a long time. And then Moses took some of the blood and he threw it at the altar. It's a pretty graphic scene. Threw it at the altar and then he took some and he threw it on the people. Which might seem a little outlandish to us. But since we've been studying all along these covenants, what does it represent? It represents, I mean, this should remind us of the ceremony with Abraham. This should remind us of everything that we've been looking at so far. That it represents that these are the parties of the covenant, and this is what is binding them to the covenant. He read the book to them, and they agreed on the terms. And then he said that this is the blood of the covenant. Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Remember, when we talked about the very first thing, we talked about what is the definition of the word covenant. It is a bond in blood, sovereignly administered. Blood is necessary because man is sinful. And because of man's sin, what has he earned? Death. 
blood is this is symbolic of that death and it appeases the justice of God and he says again behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with these words the blood of the covenant I hope that these words ring out to you because we say them every week when we do the Lord's Supper this is the blood of the covenant Hebrews chapter 10 turn there with me real quick I guess I should have told you to keep a finger there sorry Hebrews chapter 10 1 through 4 says this For since the law has been but a shadow of good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices... There is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It is impossible for the blood of goats and bulls to take away sins. But yet they did it because the Lord commanded them to. Even though they, that blood actually did nothing, the Lord commanded them to do that. Why? Because they were a shadow of things to come. They were a shadow of the one ultimate sacrifice, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who would make the ultimate sacrifice and would shed His blood, the only blood that is able to do anything. And it's because of Jesus Christ's blood that the people at Sinai were safe that day, not the blood of the goats, not the blood of the bulls. It's the exact same thing for us. And you read that. Look at verse 9 and through 11 of 24. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up. And look at verse 10. This should, like, knock us out of our chairs. And they saw the God of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel. What else? What elsewhere in Scripture, what does it say? No one sees God and does what? Lives. But these people saw the God of Israel. And there under his feet were a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And get this. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God. And then what did they do together? They ate and drank. God did not strike them down. Instead, they ate together. How is this even possible? Because God became flesh and dwelt among them. Who was God that came and ate with them on Sinai? God the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Because what does John say in John chapter 1? Can't see God and live, but Jesus, He has made Him known. We can see God 
and live because of Jesus Christ. What he what does he do with them in this very hour? He shows them that the blood shed for them for the remission of their sins. He shows them that. He shows them himself. He sits and he eats a meal with them. This should all like start churning in our heads and we should be thinking about one thing right now. Turn to Luke chapter 22. And here in Luke chapter 22, starting at verse 14, we have the institution of the Lord's Supper. Something that we read every week. And look there at verse 20. This is at, this is Jesus sitting and eating with his people. The twelve disciples. And what does he say? After, he took the cup after he'd eaten and he said this, this cup that is poured out for you is what? The new covenant in my blood. This is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus was there when those words were spoken in Sinai, wasn't he? And so this brings us lastly then to the keeper of the covenant. Jesus is the keeper of the covenant. Through him, we have access to God. The people that were below on the mountain that couldn't come up and they couldn't even touch the mountain lest they die, now we are like them. We have access to God. But Jesus' blood is much different than the blood of goats and bulls because his blood is the blood of very God made flesh. And his blood alone, his blood alone is the one, he is the one alone that could say all the words of God, all the, all the words that the Lord has spoken, I will do. And he did. And that's why his blood is able to do what it can do for us and wash away our sins. Because when Israel said these words, all the words of the Lord we will do, what did they do? Well, remember Moses was up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. During that time, Israel said, well, I think Moses is dead. Let's fashion for ourselves a God and worship it. After all that they had seen, Aaron was up on the mountain and saw God and ate with him. And Aaron was down there making a golden calf and calling it God. Let's not judge the people there for doing that because we are just as fickle as they are. This very short time after this grand time they had on the mountain, and now, just a few days later, they're worshiping an idol and dancing around it, is what Scripture says. I mean, we want to say, how could they be so fickle? And why would Jesus, Jesus choose for a people up in, for himself and die for them? Why would he do that if we are so fickle and the people of Israel are so fickle and they've been fickle ever since? Why would he even do that? Because he made a covenant. And man couldn't live up to his end. So he had to die in our place. It wasn't enough for these bulls and these goats to die. God himself had to come down so that our end of the covenant could be upheld. And so that we could receive the full blessings of the covenant. It doesn't make any sense. 
that is the one thing that I regularly get told by unbelievers is that doesn't make any sense. And I'm you're you're exactly right. It doesn't make any sense because I'm the least deserving person there is. But yet he keeps his covenant anyway. So how then should we respond? How then should we respond? We should respond by keeping his law. Because what does he say about his law? Do this and you'll live. And now I hope you can see how these laws concerning the bulls and the goats and all these, all the death and the sacrifice, I hope you can see now how they're no longer needed. We no longer need to build altars and sacrifice goats because the ultimate sacrifice has been made by the ultimate priest, our Lord Jesus Christ, and it is no longer needed because his blood covers all. That said, some will still try to appease him on their own. And he will they will cast down his offer of grace and they will attempt to earn it on their own. And if that's the case, that person should not only live perfectly, but they should also have to find some equally effective way as the blood of Jesus Christ in order to appease the judgment of a just God. Because remember, there is no remission of sins without the shedding of blood. And a bull and a goat won't do it. And I'll save the suspense. It can't be done. And so if you're an unbeliever, that is you. You are attempting to earn your way to the favor of a just God. And it can't be done. You're attempting to earn your way, as it were, to the top of Mount Sinai to dine with God himself to dine with the God of all creation without invitation and your only credential is that you are an idolater it can't be done you have to accept the blood of Jesus Christ you have to call upon his name call upon his name Lord and Savior you have to believe that he was resurrected from the dead and then and only then you can be saved so what about for us Christians? We have a perfect picture here of the meal that was eaten on Sinai. We have a perfect picture of that today here with the Lord's Supper. And I hope you see that. Like then, what should we do? We should look to this supper as a reminder of the covenant that exists between us and God. And we need it. As an act of grace in our lives. Because when we take this supper in a very real and spiritual way, we come face to face with our Lord Jesus Christ, just like they did on Sinai that very day. The elements that we have here, the bread and the juice, they are just shadows that point to something that is very real. But they are signs to us and a seal to us of what our Lord Jesus tells us that we should remember him and that we should be blessed. And so for us, as we hear this book of the law in Exodus, and as we read the Ten Commandments there that are found in chapter 20, this should not drive us to legalism. It's capable of doing that, but it shouldn't drive us there. We should then have a desire to follow him and to serve him because of what he's done 
for us. And so in that way, the supper, the Lord's Supper is a reminder, not only of what he's done for us, but also it's a call to us, to holiness, in our lives as believers. Because because, we live holy. We live as a holy people because he has made us clean. Because the Lamb of the blood, or the blood of the Lamb of God has made us clean. So as we come to the table today, let us remember that. Let us thank the Lord for the grace that we have in Him, but let us also live in holiness. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us to do just that. There is no line between your love and your mercy and your grace towards us and the call to holiness that you have in our lives. You love us anyway, thankfully. So Lord, help us to live in such a way, just like these people at the top of the mountain, all that you have said we will do. Help us to do just that, Father. Help us to live in that all that you have told us to do, we will do. Help us with that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.